3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. You're listening to Summer Programming on 3CR Breakfast, bringing you some of the highlights and conversations we've had during the year. What a great way to start the morning with that track from the Marindas, We Sing Until Sunrise, um, a really amazing Indigenous duo who'll be releasing their album later this year, I hope, or maybe early next year. So now we're really so fortunate to be joined by Omid Tufigian, who's a lecturer, researcher and community advocate um, and who is the translator of Beru's Bachani's new book, No Friend But the Mountains, Writing from Manus Prison. Good morning, Omid. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. I was wondering to start with, would you be able to give us an overview of, um, of the book and the process that I guess led to it coming about? Yeah, sure. Um, the book is basically, uh, it, it's really hard to classify, it's really hard to describe uh, because it's a mixture of different things. Of course, um, there are elements of his uh, journalism work and also his political commentary that everyone is familiar with uh, from the articles that he publishes and the speeches that he gives, but it also mixes in uh, a lot of uh, philosophical reflection, uh, psychological observation, uh, folklore, myth, epic, uh, it's it's a it's a mix of different things to fuse together in really interesting ways and um, it, it begins uh, with the uh, journey uh, in Indonesia to the uh, to the seashore where they uh, where the refugees board the boat um, uh, it it depicts the first boat journey uh, which wasn't successful um, that ended up. Um, uh, who's ended up nearly dying uh, on that first journey. It uh, then discusses the second journey, um, incarceration on Christmas Island, and then the rest of the book is about um, uh, the systematic torture and um, the the ordeal uh, on on Manus Island. Mm. In and terms of the the oh, sorry. Oh, no, I shouldn't say, for listeners who aren't aware, I guess, um, Baruz Bachani is a Kurdish writer, journalist and refugee who's been imprisoned on the Manus Island um, so-called regional processing centre since 2013. Um, yeah, just for anyone tuning in who wasn't aware of that. Yeah, I mean, if you um, Google Baruz Bachani, uh, you'll get a whole range of different uh, articles and uh, different forms of uh, activism online that he's been involved in. Uh, but I, I guess with the... With the um, the writing process. Uh, I met Behuz Bichani online uh, at the, right at the beginning of 2016. It was just after he started publishing under his own name. Uh, before that, he was using a pen name. And um, he asked me if I would be uh, able to help him every now and then with, uh, with translation work because uh, I think he only had one translator at the time. Um, and obviously, he was uh, writing quite a lot, um, more than a, uh, more work than and it's um, more work than for one, one person to handle. Um, I, I translated one article for him soon after, and uh, the response was really good, and we started to work together, and we really became familiar with each other's style and also perspective on the issue. And he started to send out bits and pieces of the novel. He'd already been, he'd been writing from the very beginning, um, from his first, uh, uh, I guess, from the very first um, moments that he entered the uh, that he was incarcerated and I, I 
he, he sent bits and pieces out to Munis Mansubi, who is the other translator. She filed the, um, the text messages and put them into a PDF file. Uh, and then those PDF files were sent to me, and I, um, uh, and I did the translation. Uh, I should mention that all the PDF files were like one long text message. So, you know, there was a lot of editing involved as well as translation. Mm. And what was yeah what was your experience of translating that text given its very specific um form as you were saying um and also yeah its content yeah i'm not trained as a translator so it's uh, something interpreting um verbally is something that i've done pretty much all my life but um but translating text uh is something i've only really doubled in in um in the last maybe five, six years or something like that, and it was only just little bits and pieces here and there. Um, so this was, uh, first of all, Behu's journalism was my first major introduction to translating. And and then when I, he asked me to translate the book, uh, I was a little bit nervous, to be honest, because, uh, I mean, journalism is one thing, but uh, speeches as well, it, it, it's um, uh, it's not as um, as dense and, uh, and complex, but uh, literature is something else altogether. So um, I was a bit nervous, but I didn't want to give up this opportunity because I knew how important this book would be. And uh, and I, I guessed right. It, it's pretty much the most amazing thing I've, I've read. Uh, like I said, it mixes a whole range of different um, genres together. And I think what was important for me was that uh, it's very philosophical and also uh, very mythical and epic. And, and that... Um, reflects a lot of the the training that I've had and also a lot of the research that I do. Mm. And one thing that um, I find really interesting is the way that I feel like translation really brings to the fore the the power of language and the um, the you know specific choice of words that we use to describe these situations and experiences because mm. um, I know you've spoken before or written before about um, you know the, the many euphemisms that get used when describing mm-hmm. um, the prisons on Manus and Nauru um, yeah would you be able to talk to us a bit about um, the power of language and some of maybe the processes you went through in choosing specific words or the, the intentionality behind that Absolutely. I'm actually really glad you asked this. This is a, uh, for me, it's an extremely important point. Uh, first of all, I think it's important to mention that uh, the translation process I think of, I, I understand as being a, a shared philosophical activity. So it wasn't just Bethlehem and I interacting with each other. Uh, there was also Munis Mansuri, uh, who was my translation consultant. So after I'd translate, uh, I'd, I'd meet with Munis, um, we'd go through the text, uh, we'd clarify um, any issues, any questions, um, cultural um, uh, peculiarities, uh, you know, a range of different things. We Actually, our meetings ended up becoming like um, uh, philosophy seminars almost. Um, there was also Sajad Kabgani, who, um, who is a, a researcher as well, and uh, I also, he also um, assisted me as a, research, as a translation consultant. There's also uh, Curly Jordan, uh, Janet Galbraith, and Arnold Dable, who all these people are referred to in the translator's note of the book. Uh, and of course, there was had uh, uh, three colleagues back in Iran who he'd um, interact with regularly about uh, writing the book and about the feedback that we were giving him as as translators and uh, consultants. Uh, 
When it came to translating particular terms and, and also the sentence structure, this is uh, this is something that I really put a lot of thought into, and we I consulted Beth Lewis regularly about this. We we really decided to um, focus on place, so it was almost like a, a place-based um, interpretation um, of, of his writing. So one word in Farsi um, could be translated in a number of different ways depending on the location and also the situation at the time, um, uh, maybe even the characters that were involved in those, uh, those um, situations, those scenes. So we were very sensitive to um, location. So whether he was having flashbacks of um, being in Kurdistan or whether it was um, on the boat um, uh, leaving Indonesia, to, uh, um, uh, travelling to Australia, or whether it was uh, in different parts of the prison. We, we had a very... Uh, uh, we, we were very sensitive to what was happening in terms of architecture, in terms of the natural environment, in terms of um, um, interactions, the, the, the power dynamics between people. The other thing that's really important is that uh, Farsi uh, uses uh, very long, elaborate sentences with a lot of consecutive clauses. Uh, and it's, it's translating that, I guess, mm, you, that same sentence structure into English uh, makes it very awkward to read. Uh, and, you know, with, with Farsi, there's a, a subject at the beginning and the verb often comes right at the very end. So you have to wait quite a while um, until you... Um, uh, acquire the meaning of, uh, of a particular sentence. Uh, in Farsi, this works okay because there's a particular kind of um, rhythm and uh, a certain kind of movement, a certain cadence uh, to the sentences. But in English, we had to do something different. So here's where we actually had opportunities to experiment um, uh, in terms of literature, in terms of the literature uh, and the narrative. So we, we split up the, the sentences. We repeated certain subjects, certain verbs, Adjectives, um, and here we could be we could use different kinds of synonyms, and um, and the other the other point is uh, it relates to um, the question that you asked is that um, empowerment and freedom were uh, a priority for us when we were translating. We'd re- we really wanted to make this um, uh, a, we really want to give it a particular kind of political vision and, and uh, convey a particular kind of um, decolonial stance, you could say. Yeah, and um, on that note, do you think that translation um, or translation practice can be a form of anti-racist or decolonial um, practice? Well, absolutely. I mean, I've learned this from working on this project with Bethels. Um I think that one of the problems is that there's a particular kind of um, prejudice um, built into the way that um, not just... Um, Australian society, politics and culture, but but even in terms of advocacy groups, there's a particular kind of bias or exclusion that's involved when it comes to working with people who have been um, disempowered, who have been excluded, marginalised, stigmatised. And I think translation is one way to actually allow people, or give people entry into certain kinds of conversations and actually to uh, occupy maybe leadership roles uh, because the, the people on um, Manus Island, uh, uh, same situation with Nauru and other detention centres, um, even people in community detention, I think there's a particular kind of insight and a particular kind of political savvy that they um, uh, that they have that I think uh, a lot of the, uh, people in the movement uh um, can really uh, benefit from. Mm. And 
Um, you're involved in a range of community advocacy projects, but I'm particularly interested in the um, in your work with the Why Is My Curriculum White campaign. Would you be able to tell us a bit about that? Oh, definitely. This is something that I've been involved in for a few years now. Uh, I have some colleagues uh, in the UK and um, Adam Elliott Cooper and uh, Nathaniel Tobias Coleman. Uh, um, uh, Through them, I found out about the Why Is My Curriculum White campaign and also its connection with the student movement in South Africa, Uh, particularly Roads Must Fall and Fees Must Fall campaigns. And when I found out about this, I thought that uh, this is definitely something that's needed in Australia. It's something that uh, I'd really like to um, uh, rally people around. And uh, I I really think it's important to um, develop a conversation around the curriculum and uh, and what that really means and also uh, the different kinds of um, power dynamics and uh, uh, different kind of structural issues around uh, the way universities uh, um, are organised and, and the way research is done and a whole range of different issues. So uh, I started the Wise My Curriculum White Australasia um, Facebook page and we've so far I've, um, I've really spent the number of years trying to work with different people, trying to bring different uh, kinds of um, initiatives together. Uh, I've given a number of papers at conferences, organised seminars, um, and even written a few things about this. Um, but uh, in Australia in particular, I think that uh, it's been a little bit slow, uh, slower than I expected, but I think it's something that has potential. Yeah, and drawing together the, these two things that we're talking about, um, how do you see the, you know, the, the Manus prison and the, the normalisation of the border regime in mainstream Australian society um, linking together with um, with the colonial imaginary in Australia and sort of the foundational xenophobia and whiteness of the Australian state? Obviously, massive question, uh, um, but, yeah, if you could just, yeah, have any insights about those connections. Absolutely. I think this is so important. I think this is definitely the direction that this conversation and, and different kinds of action uh, need to go, uh, need to move into. The... I think that what's happening on Manus Island, the border politics in Australia are different forms of oppression and discrimination and subjugation. I think this is um, part of a much larger uh, issue. It's, it's, it's about historical injustice. It's about how uh, Australia was invaded. Uh, it's about the whole uh, Western colonial project uh, in, in Australia. Uh, and I think that uh, it's, it's important to learn from what's happened in other uh, parts of the world, but I think there's something distinct to the, um, the colonial project here in Australia. And I think we're seeing that played out in places like um, Manus Island and Nauru and other detention centres. But I think it's, it's something that's existed in Australia uh, and it, it, it's uh, something that's already been experimented um, on um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, on South Sea Islander peoples. Uh, it's, uh, it's a particular kind of um, uh, structure that uh, has uh, it, it is constituted by a whole range of different sorts of processes and different kinds of uh, um, programs that, in, that interlock with each other. It, it it's also um, uh, needs to be considered in terms of um, gender discrimination, um, of course race, but um, class as well, uh, disability, uh, faith-based discrimination. And I think what's happening with, with Manus and Nauru now is is basically the um, this colonial imaginary or these kinds of colonial structures that still pervade so much of uh, Australian culture and society. I think they're being uh, 
um, amplified, and I think that will if if people don't resist, if there's not um, uh, some uh, collective action against what's happening, um, we'll see it um, start to seep into um, different aspects of um, Australian society and culture and, and affect everyone's lives because this is essentially, I think, what um, people in positions of power and privilege want to do is, is find ways to control um, people far beyond um, the, those that are stigmatised and, uh, and marginalised um, uh, it's something that, um, that I think is the people in power trying to ingrain into all aspects of our lives. So mm-hmm. I think the issue of Manus Island and Nauru don't just relate to the refugees. This is a much wider problem, and, and it's transnational as well. Yeah, and look, I wish we had time to continue this important conversation, but um, on that note of yeah, the importance of collective advocacy... Um, uh, how, just very briefly, how can people find out more about the Why Is My Curriculum White campaign and also about Beru's Chinese new book? Uh, definitely. It's, um, uh, if you look on Facebook, Why Is My Curriculum White Australasia, um, but also check out the original Why Is My Curriculum White Facebook page that's uh, um, it's based in the UK. Uh, also, I've, I've written a number of things online, so just basically typing my, my name and why is my curriculum white uh, and also keep an eye out for new things coming up. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm currently working on a number of different projects that will be released uh, this year and maybe early next year. And in terms of the book, uh, I think uh, all uh, major bookstores um, are supplying Behrouz um, Bouchani's book. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Amid. Have a great day. Thanks for having me. That was Omid Tofigian. You're on 3CR 855 AM, summer broadcasting on Thursday breakfast. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yaru country. And it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. You're listening to summer programming on 3CR Breakfast, bringing you some of the highlights and conversations we've had during the year. Up next, we have an interview with Amanda George and Emma Russell, and they'll be talking about 30 years since the Fairly Ring Out protests. We're going to have a chat today with two incredible abolitionist women uh, that will, and we'll all reflect on the 30th anniversary of the demonstrations that occurred. So we have Amanda George and Emma Russell on the line. Amanda is a very long-time activist, academic, community lawyer, uh, one of the founding members of Flat Out, a statewide service for women exiting prison, and uh, also one of the original organisers of the Fairly Ring Out. And Emma Russell is a lecturer at La Trobe University whose research explores decarceral feminist and queer activist theories. Uh, and prison abolition, and she has been working on collating audio from the Fairly Ring Out uh, and a and creating a podcast and a research project. And both members, both Amanda and Emma, are members of the Abolitionist and Transformative Justice Centre. Before we start off and have a chat about the 30th anniversary of the Fairly Ring Out, we have some audio that um, from the original 3CR broadcasts. I'm right outside the front of Fairly Women's Prison at the moment. Everyone's just marching round and they're all around the prison. They're banging on the walls with cans. They're banging on the big slide-up front door. It's really huge. There's a lot of, as you can hear, there's a lot of noise. There's a lot of people having a great time. At the, like, if you're anywhere in the area, just come down right now. This is just an amazing feeling here. But you can see the door of the prison shaking. We'd love to break it down today. 
As a member of the Women Imprisonment Group who have organised this, the fourth ring out fairly. Women of Fairly, we expect a thousand people here today. We have got tents. We have got people from the Prostitutes Collective, from Women Against Prison, Rank and File, the Council for the Single Mothers and Their Children, Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. We have got food, we've got children's activity, and we are here today because your lives are important to us. Emma and Amanda, that was such amazing audio. And Amanda, we can hear you in that audio. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, well, um, it, it was really incredible. The um, That last piece was trying to uh, address the women over the wall. So we had massive PAs. We had a fantastic truck that uh, 3CR's Jan Bartlett um, provided as a stage. Massive sound system. Heaps of bands. And, um, yeah, um, I think the last ring out, there were more than a thousand uh, people there. Um, one of the great things in the first audio was uh, saying that we could see that the, uh, the, gate was, um, the gate was moving. Well, in fact, in one of the um, ring outs, the gate was actually knocked off its hinges. <laughs> and um, it, I guess one reflection of... of, of how different times are is that we didn't get in trouble. <laughs> there were, you know, police were there, but they could see that this was a, an event that was actually being really well managed, even though it sort of, you know, we didn't really intend to get the prison gate off, but it, it came off. Um, and there was an, an, an acknowledgement that there needed to be a great deal of respect around the issues that we were they're protesting about. Mm. And Emma, it would be great to, because at the moment you're currently putting together a podcast of this audio and also working on a research project about it. So do you want to give us a bit of a, a historical overview of the ringouts? As you mentioned before, Katya, the first one was 30 years ago on the 26th of June in 1988 and it was organised by the Coalition Against Women's Imprisonment of which Amanda was a key component. Um, and then it was repeated again uh, in 1990 uh, and in 1993. And then the last one was in 1996. And um, it was actually two and a half thousand people at the last one, was, uh, is what's recorded, which is absolutely incredible to imagine that many people at a, at a women's prison protest. Um, and the last one occurred because um, Fairly Women's Prison was closed in 1996. Um, to make way for a new private prison for women um, that was constructed out in Deer Park, which is still the prison that, that women are incarcerated in today out in the western suburbs. Um, it's not privatised anymore. It only lasted four years as a private prison because it was so horrifically and chaotically mismanaged and leastly dangerous. Um, but what we have seen um, in the... The 22 years since Fairly Women's Prison was closed out in Fairfield um, is that the number of women imprisoned has quadrupled. Mm. Um, so, you know, we've got a pretty alarming historical trajectory, but, um, you know, these protests were a very...
powerful flashpoint of a broader movement against and around women's imprisonment issues um, that, you know, has, has persisted and persevered over decades. And we're going to, um, we'll, shortly we'll play a little clip about the demands of the Fairly Ring Out. Um, but Amanda, before we go to the demands, because a lot of those demands are still the things that we're demanding today about um, for our justice system and for women in prison, but it would be great to know a little bit about why the Fairly Ring Out was organised back in 1988. Uh there was a few things going on. Um, nationally, there was a Royal Commission into Aboriginal Death and, and Island of Death in Custody, so that was a real focus. And there was also um, an, an in parliamentary inquiry in um, the Victorian Parliament um, looking at what's called community violence. And so we decided that um, I was at Fitzroy Legal Service at the time and um, a, a group of us decided that we should put in a submission around community violence, which is women's incarceration. And what we looked at was all of the factors um, that lead to and are involved in women's um, imprisonment, which is a history of family violence, uh, childhood sexual assault, uh, self-medication, lack of access to education, lack of meaningful jobs, uh, no decent detox rehab facilities in the community, nowhere where women who are wanting to detox or rehab could have their children living with them. So uh, it, it, rather than focusing on the fact that women were committing particular offences, we were wanting to educate the community about really these things don't happen in a vacuum and all of us uh, need to be in our various sectors involved in trying to change things um, to reduce women's incarceration. Housing, of course, was a massive issue then, massive issue uh, now. And we thought that if we had a, a broad coalition of organisations involved, those particular organisations would educate themselves around the issues as well, um, so that the housing sector would, um, you know, become educated around the importance of housing for women pre and post release. Um, very big issues around needle exchanges at the time. So we, you know, the group of people who were involved directly in women's prison stuff was tiny, but because the issues are very broad. We've got a really big coalition of uh, groups. We decided on a lightning campaign of about six weeks and we produced a report that was tabled in Parliament, but um, every week we let out a new set of demands and we had a new organisation um, doing media um, around the links, for example, between poverty, Centrelink and women's incarceration because at that time also there were a great number of women going inside for social security fraud. So this sort of lightning campaign which was uh, really well covered in all media um, uh, in the lead up um, led to um, a thousand people on that first uh, ring out being there. And I, and I guess one of the really significant things at that time was that women in prison were able to make telephone calls out. And so 3CR and a number of shows did some great interviews with women inside. So they were actively engaged in what the demands were and what it was 
um, what the message was going out into the community. That's amazing because people in prison today, for, for those that don't know, it's actually incredibly hard to communicate with people inside and uh, people inside generally only have, say, 10 people on their phone lists that they're allowed to call and those are monitored by the prison. So uh, it's amazing that at that time you could have such contact with the women inside. It might be a good time to play uh, the demands, actually. So we've got a little audio clip for that. Co-author of the report, Amanda George, outlined some of the recommendations. We are asking that there be a doctor at Fairley in residence 24 hours a day. We're asking that when prisoners are visited by their children, that this not be their one visit for the week. The right to see their parents is a children's right. It is not something that the Office of Corrections should take away from children. The Office of Corrections has got nothing to do with children. We are also asking that free childcare be made available at community-based correction centres. We are demanding that the possession of drugs of dependence for personal use be decriminalised. We are demanding that prostitution be decriminalised. And we are demanding that the humiliating and degrading process of strip searches of prisoners after every visit, whether or not any, there is any suspicion of things being passed, we demand that these strip searches be stopped right now. Oh, that audio just gave me goosebumps. It was amazing. Um, those demands, uh, Emma and Amanda, whoever feels free to comment, those demands are still going on today. So, I mean, it's it was the 1980s and you were calling for things like decriminalisation of drugs and decriminalisation of sex work and um, calling for an end to strip searching, which is unfortunately still going on today. Um, it was pretty radical stuff. Uh, but it's, those issues are still affecting us today. The strip search campaign goes on, actually. Um, we've just uh, flat out um, have just re-released a postcard. So we're asking uh, people to write to the Minister for Corrections to demand the end of strip searching. Like, other countries are stopping them because they're, they're completely ineffective and um, they're just extraordinarily abusive and re-traumatising. Um, the issue around, uh, you know, yes, yeah, the issues are essentially the same. Um, however, um, visits by children at least are not removed um, automatically when women uh, are facing or involved in, you know, so-called offences inside. Um, but really, uh, it, it, things really have got worse. That, that has to be said because of the massive um, over... Uh, incarceration of Aboriginal women inside and the phenomenal numbers of women um, going to prison. And the, the current state government, the mandatory sentencing laws that they are pushing through uh, with, with no concern 
for, and this is a really pragmatic issue, with no concern about how much money that is going to remove from government's ability to pay for education, health, housing and childcare, uh, let alone the, uh, the women's and, and men's lives it's destroying by giving them mandatory sentences with, with you know, no hope of, uh, of, of getting out. It's, um, um, it, it's just appalling. Emma, you've been bringing together a lot of this audio and, and I guess also your research focuses a lot about what's going on inside our prisons and the prison industrial complex. And so with your... You're looking at your research and the work that you're doing on this podcast. Um, how has kind of media and 3CI in particular played into this and, and some of your observations about, um, I guess, how these issues have been presented a lot over the years uh, and how they're still going on and you're still identifying them in your research today? Yeah, I mean, like Amanda's saying, um, you know, it's, I guess it's, it's sad that so many of these, and infuriating that so many of these issues um, persist um, but also I think it's kind of a testament as well to how um, I guess far-reaching and um, thorough and radical some of these demands of this movement was you know 30 years ago and um, you know what they were calling for are, uh, unfortunately still relevant today but you know also powerfully still relevant today and that's kind of part of the significance of um, I guess why um, Brie Carlton and I have been doing this historical work is to try and learn from this movement um, to move forward in the present and the future. Um, and I think it's interesting, um, over the course of the protest, you can see the demands kind of morph and change a little bit. Um, so, for example, by, by the last ring-out protest, the, the first demand that the protest opens with is that no women should be in prison. So it's a really explicitly abolitionist position by by the mid-90s. It, it always was abolitionist, but it's sort of unapolog unapologetically so by then. Um, uh, yeah, and Amanda can probably talk a bit more about the role of 3CR, but uh, yeah, I was fortunate enough to, to find um, the, that women on the line actually, um, you know, they did these broadcasts of the, of the ring out in the 80s and 90s, and um, fortunately they archived them on cassette, so I was able to digitise the cassette um, at 3CR with the help of the wonderful Juliette Fox. Um, and, yeah, it's incredibly powerful, I think, being able to capture some of these original sounds. I think it makes it um, so much more moving in the present and really connects people in the in nowadays to, um, you know, what happened back then. And it seems like sound in particular was um, a really important component of the protest, you know, from the, the band, the live bands that were there and... Um, the chanting and the noise and the banging on the prison and and the, and the 3CR broadcasts across and through the wall um, really elevated the protests and made them all that more powerful. Mm. And because uh, as community activists we're often calling for things and it can seem like a long time in between successes, uh, we're going to play a little audio clip of some of the successes of the campaign. <laughs> CCR provided a link with women inside Fairly Women's Prison by encouraging the women to listen to the 3CR coverage and to ring the station to express their feelings about their imprisonment, 
and conditions inside the jail. Susan Duffy spoke to several women prisoners. Look, family's just a show place, you know what I mean? The building's all just show. What goes on is what we're concerned about. We're not interested in the posh buildings and all the bullshit they give to the uh, public. We've got to live in them. We know what it's all about. I'm talking on behalf of all the girls at Fairley, and I, we all want to thank them with all their hearts. And while they're out there for us, we're in here for them. I think I've just been made. You can hear everybody clapping. It's just been done. We managed to get right round the prison. Right. It's a big prison. You got right around. Yep, I can't hear you, Susan. There's too much noise here. But just a fantastic feeling. All the women wove around the prison and they just made... They just linked up arms. So the whole day has been a total success. Over 800 women linked arms around Fairley Women's Prison. During the action, two ex-prisoners visited the women inside and brought out a petition signed by 56 inmates, which backed up the recommendations made by the report Women and Imprisonment in Victoria. Amanda, you mentioned before that uh, you were really able to get quite close access to the women inside, and one of the real issues today for people that are imprisoned uh, is how separated they are from the community and how hard it is to get access to them and how often around prisons there's a huge amount of security um, and areas where the public can't go. So how, what was it like or how did the women inside actually partake in the protest and in the demands themselves? Yeah, it's amazing hearing that, um, that audio actually because when you go to a prison now, you can't even get near the door because they, they excise all this land around the prison as prison property. So even going, you know, often within 50 to 100 metres of a prison now, they can tell you to get off. So, um, you know, it, in some ways, what, what was going on was that we, we had a, a very strong uh, relationship with women inside, going in and out all the time, as did lots of community organisations. So a lot more people had access to the prison in those days. And um, we let management know that it was going on. So uh, we told them what was going to be happening, sort of. Um, and, you know, we, we said to them, we, we do not want you to stop women having visits on the day. We will make sure that the front gate is accessible so that women can get through and have their visits because we didn't want women to get punished for the fact that we were having a party outside. Um, you know, even though it was a party about... It was a political party. Um, so I think the fact that, that um, there, there was an acknowledgement by the, <clears throat> the prison that these things, are, these things are important. This is the community getting involved. It's a very different, um, you know, it's very militarised now. Prison, the whole prison industrial complex has completely militarised things and has made prisons completely hysterical about anyone knowing what's going on inside the prison. Women inside the prison, a couple of them actually got on the roof to see if they could see. Um, it, it was, and nothing really happened. Women inside weren't locked in. They were... You know, we could hear them inside. They could hear us outside. Um, at one of the protests, they actually threw a, a sheet over the fence uh, with signatures and a, and a message on it. Um, and 
know, like we heard, women could access the telephones and ring 3CR and, and go and talk back while it was all happening. Um, and in the lead-up, a number of us had had fairly uh, good conversations with women inside about what we were going to be doing. Um, um, and we were really concerned not to sort of jeopardise, you know, what life was like for them in there. And as you said, I mean, now that kind of, well, that kind of going on, so people getting up on the roof, throwing sheets over the fence, I mean, that now would be deemed a prison riot, essentially, and there would be strict lockdown procedures that would be put in place for people taking that kind of activity. Oh, there'd be gas, there'd be spray, there'd be, you know, men running around with these Star Wars helmets on, (laughs) you know, giving you grief. Like... It truly was an extraordinary moment and, um, you know, the people who were running the prison were sensible. They weren't terrified. Mm-hmm. They weren't, um, you know, this whole, the whole risk management thing means that you can't let anything happen now because, you know, something, someone's going to get in strife for something. So there was a great deal of courage, I have to say, um, by the prison administration um, around allowing these things to go on. Mm. Um, there had been, you know, bands going into the prison, like Nice Girls Don't Spit went in, and um, I think a week after one of the, the uh, ring-outs, um, they, they went in and uh, did some music inside, and, it, you know, it, prisons were more... Uh, there's no way they were uh, not... They weren't transparent, mm. but there was much more movement in and out. Mm. Um, we had people who worked at the prison who were helping us, um, you know, in that that they were giving us information useful to our um, our demands because they were interested in women's lives too. Mm-hmm. Emma, you're actually working on compiling a podcast uh, of the Fairly Ring out at the moment. Yes, yes, it's done. <laughs> oh, it's done? Um, yes, it's, I... Yes, <laughs> just in time. Um, yes, so the, it's a 55-minute um, podcast that's about the history of the Ring Out Fairly demonstrations and um, goes a bit into the background of, of Women Against Prison, which was um, a core collective that was um, central in organising the Ring Out that Amanda was a co-founder of. Um, and, yeah, it's available um, for free on soundcloud.com. And it's just soundcloud.com forward slash ring out fairly. And that's ring with a W. And fairly is F-A-I-R-L-E-A. Great. And you've also been working on a, a research project with Bree Carlton. Is that right? Yes. Bree and I are just finishing off a book about um, the history of this, of this broader anti-cultural feminist movement based in Melbourne, um, the history focuses on the 80s and 90s and yeah the book should be out either at the end of this year or early next year um, and it's called Resisting Carceral Violence, Women's Imprisonment and the Politics of Abolition. Prisons are basically dangerous places for the people in them and for the community because prisons do uh, do not do anything other than, than um, punish people. Um, if we want to change people's lives who are in prison, we need to dump a whole lot of money into services in the community, um, into, you know, decent wages for people, into housing and uh, support services for 
uh, you know, women who have been victims of violence their whole life. That is what will create a safe community. Money in the community is positive money. Amanda, you mentioned that the band Nice Girls Don't Spit went in and performed for the women in Fairley. Uh, so who were Nice Girls Don't Spit? Um, nice Girls Don't Spit were a, a group of uh, wonderful women. Uh, uh, Billy Clark was singing up front. Um, a bit of a brain snap about who else was in it, but they were all top women who did uh, sort of a bit of country, sort of, I guess country western, um, dirty blues um so nice girls went in and i just want to sort of track back for one second going back to helen barnacle singing because helen was from a group called somebody's daughter theater and somebody's daughter theater uh were a, um, a theater group who were inside and when start, women started to get out they started to do, to do outside shows now it's really important to acknowledge that somebody's daughter theater were integral in um, convincing the community that it was not a great idea of the government to send women out to Jika Jika until the new private prison was built. Because when they were going to be closing fairly, they were closing fairly uh, to open a private women's prison. But in the hiatus, they were going to send um, women and their kids out to Jika Jika, which was a super maximum security prison at Fairley, at, at um, Pentridge, where uh, five women had, uh, five men had died in a, a, a protest about its conditions. Now, Somebody's Daughter Theatre came out. A lot of those women who were in Somebody's Daughter had been in Jika when it was Jika. Because for a, a time um, in the 80s, women were actually in Pentridge Prison and would be sent to Jika for punishment. Uh, there were a, lo- a long number, um, uh, there were a lot of women who actually died when they were incarcerated at Pentridge in that period of time. And that was why we had that demand no women should be in men's prisons, because women die mm-hmm. when they're in men's prisons. The, the idea to send them to JICA was just mad, you know, madness is not the right word to say. It was just criminal. And um, somebody's daughter really got on board and, and women were able to, um, you know, tell the tale of how appalling it is for women to be in men's prisons and tell the tale of how appalling it is for women being in prison anyway. Um, so I, I just want to acknowledge that, I guess. And... Um, yeah, there was Nice Girls Don't Spit, Rapunzel Gets Down, uh, Titters played, Archie and Ruby played. You know, music and culture have always been central to protest movements and they were totally central to um, the Ring Out Fairlies as well. And just on what you said before about women being inside Jika Jika and for um, a Pentridge was, is, uh, was a... A horrible place where a number or a lot of people died a lot of aboriginal people died and, and were actually buried there uh, and also i think it's important to reflect on young people and the risks of young people being put into men's maximum security prisons as well and um as you would know men, uh, young there were 30 young men in uh, a maximum security unit gravilia of Barwon Prison about two years ago now. So there's always this risk of women and children being moved into in highly punitive, dangerous spaces. Um, so I guess that's still a demand that we have today, 30 years on as well. That's right. 
That was Amanda George and Emma Russell talking about 30 years since the Fairly Ringout protests. You're on 3CR 855 AM Summer Programming, bringing you some of the highlights and conversations we've had during the year. You got to remember, Nainok's a special day for us, fellas. That's a reminder who we are. Every year for NAIDOC Week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am a black, black man. NAIDOC means a lot to me. It's about identity and also about past and present. NAIDOC means a lot to me for my family and my people. And the people forgetting about our rights. You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison broadcasts. Happy NAIDOC! You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Just before we heard Mr. Ladida by uh, Baker Boy, so such a great track. This week marks the 10th anniversary of the National Apology to the Stolen Generation. However, 10 years on, how much has changed? In 2017, an estimated 17,664 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children were living in out-of-home care. Grandmothers Against Removals is a community group that started in 2014 by First Nations community members that were directly affected by child removals. To talk to us about this issue from Grandmothers Against Removals, we are joined by Christine Nyingware Palmer. Christine has a long history of working in Aboriginal welfare organisations and has provided evidence to the Royal Commission into Protection and Detention of Children in Northern Territory. Christine uh, will talk about her work with Grandmothers Against Removals and about Reconciliation Week. Welcome, Christine. Good morning and thank you for this opportunity. Firstly, I'd like to um, acknowledge the Aboriginal people um, of the Wiradjuri mob and all Aboriginal um, grandmothers and peoples who's listening out there this morning. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Thank you, Christine. Uh, so Grandmothers Against Removals has had a busy week this week, meeting with government. Uh, what demands or what has been happening for Grandmothers Against Removals this week? Well... It was very interesting. We, we met with our Aboriginal ministers and they really couldn't um, commit to anything. We then went and met with um, Indigenous Minister Scullion and he has, has given us um, agreed um, to meet all delegations, you know, in, in our own communities. And he has also um, will make arrangements for him and Northern Territory Minister Dale Wakefield to meet with us with our um, demands in, in Alice Springs. That's great. And what are some of the demands of the group? Of the group? Of Grandmothers Against Removals. Yeah. Um, we, we, we said that Australian government must be made accountable and for all the damage they have done. And we, as Aboriginal people, need to step now, step up now and say no more. Their trust has been broken over and over again. 
and they must allow us to work together to keep our kids safe at home. Our law, culture and kinship system must be respected and supported. But some of the um, demands, well, we as First Nations grandmother, we demanded no adoption of our children, and it was appalling to hear that four of our um, Aboriginal children already have been adopted, and, and that is far too many. We need um, the government to um, like end the institutionalisation of our children in all forms, like no more removals, no more imprisonment. Restore all removed and imprisoned children to their families. Give First Nations communities control of our welfare so we can keep families together through culturally appropriate. Um, we need um, therapeutic services to support healing and this will end in the pipeline from the appropriate trauma informed, you know. Mm. Um, child protection system through to juvenile justice and the adult criminal justice system. Um, Overhaul of the child protection, juvenile justice and all related systems that target our families and violate the rights of children every day. Properly address the faults, failures and criminal activity that plagues these systems. And this means holding government, non-government and individual perpetrators accountable for any physical, psychological and sexual abuse of children in care. And sometimes resulting in death. Overhauling the processes used to assess family members as carers and make decisions about family contact to ensure genuine compliance with the Aboriginal child placement principle. These decisions must be determined by the families and communities that know how to keep their children safe and cared for. So we presented these demands to the Australian government knowing that we are the only ones who can make sure our children are safe. And our people have run our own programs for our communities that have succeeded from for generations. We have shown the First Nations community control works. We will keep fighting for our children and build up to a national gathering on the 11th anniversary of the apology to the stolen generation on 13th of February 2019. So in... Saying all that, we did um, meet with our Northern Territory Families Minister and we demanded, before we came down, how many children in care, how many children in detention, how many of those children are on the land, how many residential care houses, how many children in each house, how many in kinship care, how many children have been taken into state. And that was appalling to hear too. Our children are still taken into, you know, moving with um, a non-Indigenous family into other states. And we also need the, to know the ratio of staff to children. Chris, Christine and Steen here. I know um, earlier in the year uh, the Law Reform Commission was calling... Um, for a halt to soaring numbers of, of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people being sent to prison. Um, and, and they were calling on, you know, all governments to work together through, um, I think it's COAG, Council of Australian Governments. Mm-hmm. What role can COAG play? I mean, it's, as you say, it seems like, you know, th- the issues that you've raised with government, um, are still happening, and but yet there's this government body which is meant to be looking after your interests, but it seems like nothing is moving forward. 
I was at a rally one day in, in Central Australia and I heard somebody say that we have a, a real toxic state. And I like that line and that word because we do have a toxic state. And all the non-Indigenous people, no matter what sector they work in, within the government, non-government, they come with this mentality that they can treat us any way they can. And we're tired of all that. We need to take control. We have, and what you're asking is that we need to sit down with somebody in Kowak to, to, to have an honest conversation, a true conversation as human beings, because our human rights has been played with, with so many times. And we need to start sitting down with honest people. And being able to have that statewide identity, isn't it? Like the, the, the sovereignty of Aboriginal people should be recognised by all and I guess the significance of self-determination should be recognised and valued. And that's right, that's right. And, and that's what we want to um, instil into our children, you know? Yeah. And speaking of children, Christine... Um, how has Grandmothers Against Removals been working in the space of youth imprisonment? Well, we have to keep an eye on what's happening then. Yeah. I went out there the other day in Alice Springs, the juvenile detention there. Um, it's like a, a ten, there's a limited um, bed there for, for, for those youth. Well, it's busting at the seam. We don't know where those kids are sleeping, you know, um, on, on mattresses on, on floor or whatever. So that's one of the main things that we're going to be looking at. Um, we want to find out who's in there. We want to check to see if they got ochre card that everyone has to have when they work in the children. Because in the past we've had, you know, um, um, people on working holiday and this is true. You know, people go on working holidays. Their their aunties or uncles may be in senior positions. So they say, well, come up here, I'll give you a job. So we need to keep a really tight rein on who's being employed as well. Um, it's only a little um, space in, in, in where the juvenile detention is. They've kind of gave a quarter or corner of that little block. Um, they've put in two demandables for the girls. Um, we're going back to, um, in full force to go and with the minister to have a, really have a look at that little yard with so many of our mob in there, of our kids are in there. And those kids are, uh, haven't even been, um, they're only on remand. They haven't, um, been committed uh, or charged with anything. And instead of them sitting there, you know, and getting, mistreated and abused, well, they could be back with a, a kinship, you know, family family members or back with family. Mm. And because there's been so much, well, I mean, this has been an issue for many, many decades now, uh, but there's been com- particular controversy in the last couple of weeks around um, really negative comments being made about 
the stolen generation and a new stolen generation, some really horrible stuff that's come out in the media. And it's why it's so important at the moment, particularly in Reconciliation Week, to start talking about or to continue talking about that young people, young Aboriginal people are still being removed from their homes, even though people think the stolen generation is over. Well, that's what I thought, you know. It really, um, I had to really listen to the GMAs, and, and I didn't, you know, realise I'm behind the eight ball, you know. I did not realise that our children were taken from their families and put into non-Indigenous families. And I heard with our meeting with our Northern Territory Family Minister, she was saying that the non-Indigenous carers are making decisions like, well, I don't think they should go back to their family, so I'm going to keep them. Now, who gives them the right Mm. to keep our kids? So we need to get on top of that statement, and that's something that we're going to be doing in Alice Springs. We're going to be um, be assessing many services in Alice Springs, and I want to start around the courthouse where it's all messy, very messy, just around the courthouse, where there's a lot of new youth services and youth workers are there and they're popping up, you know, with new names that I'm not familiar with. And they're all there running around with this child, not talking to family, grandmothers that's in the courthouse, or, or, or not even using an interpreter to explain what's happening. So there's a lot of stuff that we need to go back and assess what's happening with our children. And then we will start jotting down all the stuff that we have gathered because nobody's doing it. And so Grandmothers Against Removals, is a lot of their work based in Alice Springs? Because it seems that you move around the country a bit because this week you're in Canberra, but is it mainly in Alice? Well, it will be in Alice, but some of the um, grandmothers around Tennant Creek and remote communities have seen us on TV, they've heard our, our interviews, and now they want to come on board. So we will be looking forward and having and inviting all grandmothers around the central region to a meeting to explain what we need to do and what has been um, talked about up to now. Christine, you, you, you've obviously been working in this space for a long time. Um, we were just speaking to Erin um, here in Victoria here from Reconciliation Victoria and she was talking about the sort of the, the what she believes or what her organisation believes are the five dimensions of reconciliation um, and all of them seem to have uh, the, the common theme and the common theme seems to be um, achievement of equity or essentially achievement of self-determination. I guess the question that I'm asking you is what scares local governments and what scares wide Australia, excuse the word, um, to let you uh, determine your own future? What, why is self-determination so hard for people to accept for, for Indigenous people in your point of view? Aboriginal people, no matter, you know, across the nation, we have a beautiful kinship system and that is not recognised through the government or any government agency. 
we need to embed our children into with culture, mm. with survival skills. And only we can do that. We can take them back to country, fill the children with the cultural knowledge, show them how to survive in the bush, finding water in dry creek beds, by digging soaking, looking at what seasonal bush food's around and bush medicine, and for them to identify tribal boundaries, tribal groups, and mainly to express themselves, for them to relax on country, allowing country to fill them. And we need for them to start respecting themselves by, and by sitting quietly and, and respect themselves, respect to everyone around them, and respect the country. Those things government can't do. Mm. Or any agency. Yeah. We as grandmothers... There are certain trees and animals and how to break up and, and what we can use mm. by cooking, you know, our, our native animals. You've got to learn how to cut it up. You don't just grab it and, and, and disrespect an animal. These are the things that we can do as grandmothers. Well, you are essentially the library. Yes. <laughs> and exactly. And our um, old people, you know, older, our, we go get them up and running because they've got a very important role as well. And to continue watching over us and making sure we're doing the right thing. And this is important also not just for young people but for all Aboriginal people and also non-Aboriginal Australia as well to recognise that there's really great healing to be done um, when First Nations people heal. And that's right, and we can only do that on country. And, and, and we've got to t- strip down the fear that a lot of people have. Our Aboriginal people have to um, walk around with this fear, and anybody um, with a white skin thinking their boss, you know, that um, we're... Anybody can come along and say something to any of our old people or young people and, and, and demand things. And because of the fear of the consequences, we have to break that down. We have to allow them to start looking at they have human rights as well. Christine, thank you so much for talking with us today. I wanted, just before we head off, I wanted, um, to allow you to, uh, mention how people can get involved. So you, you said that there's going to be a meeting um, for all the people living in Central Australia uh, coming up soon. But if people are really interested in getting involved, and especially grandmother, First Nations grandmothers all around Australia, how can they get in touch with you? Well, we have a Facebook page, but I, I would encourage all the grandmothers around the nation to stay strong, black and deadly, and to start working within their own community and start assessing what um, government and non-government organisations are not doing for our children. We will be back in um, Canberra in six months' time and we want to fill um, the Aboriginal Embassy and go up to in full force with all grandmothers, all from all nations and tribal groups and 
in Australia. We've got a lot of work to do and government has to listen, has yeah. to listen to us because we are the we are the answers to our problems. Well, good luck. I think that's really exciting. I think that the work Grandmothers Against Removals are doing is amazing. So that Facebook group is, um, if you just search for uh, at gmar.grandmothersagainstremovals, it comes up. I had a look last night, so you'll find it pretty easy. Um, thank you so much, Christine, for talking uh, with us this morning about what Grandmothers Against Removals are doing and also about what is happening currently for young Aboriginal people in this country. And one of the, um, before you go, I spoke to Minister Scullion in regards to the uh, um, ex-Dondale uh, ex detainees, especially up in Darwin. Yeah. I visited up there and and I told him that the prison officers over there is mistreating and abusing um, and that has to stop. So he, what he's um, um, stated that he will get in touch with our Chief Minister up in the Northern Territory, um, Michael Gunner, and have a word with him. And I will make sure, follow that up and see what the outcome of that conversation would be, would look like as well. So we've got to keep... Um, keep the momentum um, up. Yes, because those little fellas, you know, the ex-John Dale detainees in there, they, you know, they've never had any... Um, debriefing after the Four Corners report. Mm. They did not um, respect them as well, you know, um, and they needed healing. They still need healing, mm. and that's something that the grandmothers will... Will be will, providing um, for them. Yes, and we'll get the um, top-end grandmothers to start looking at um, what they can do for those young fellows as well. Christine, thank you for joining us on 3CR, and you... Stay strong, black and deadly. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And that was Christine Palmer. That was Christine Palmer. Thank you. That was so great to speak with Christine. Yeah. You're listening to 3CR, Breakfast Summer Series, bringing you some of the highlights and conversations we've had during the year. For more details, visit 3cr.org.au forward slash breakfast. Stay tuned to 3CR on 855 AM, 3CR Digital, or streaming live on www.3cr.org.au forward slash streaming.